Today's scripture comes from the New Testament Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to the flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asks. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of you of earth, of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to contend the world, but to save the world through him. This is God's word. I've, I've been excited about this passage because it's such a great, no matter where you're at today in, in your faith or what you believe, like this is just a really, really great story for you. You might be new to this whole church thing. You might be kind of skeptical and like Jesus and I'm not sure. And even some of the stuff that, that Bethany just read, like, ah, oh, there's wind and there's birth and there's wombs and there's snakes. And there's like, what is going on? Like, this sounds so confusing. But um, I'm glad you're here if you're new because this is perfect because maybe you came in here and you were thinking that the point of Christianity was to make bad people become good people. And what this passage of scripture, this passage of scripture kind of dismantles that. It kind of, it kind of actually is, it's not that. That's not the story. It's deeper than that. It's more beautiful than that. Um, if you are not new, you're here and you've like read this, you've heard this passage read and preached on a bunch of times, you're at risk. I'm at risk. We're at risk because whenever you read or bump up against something that you're familiar with, it's easy for you to just sort of blow past it and miss some of the beauty, beautiful things in it. And so no matter if you've heard this story a bunch, a bunch of different times, um, let's come at it with some fresh eyes this morning um, because it's going to be helpful for all of us. And this is a personal passage for me because this, this passage, of, of I, I can, we're going to learn about, about Nicodemus as I can so relate to Nicodemus. Um, I mentioned earlier we're in the season of Lent and Lent is this 40-day period that leads us up into Easter and we're just a couple Sundays into that and it's a new thing for our church. It's a new thing for me to sort of walk alongside Lent. Last week I talked about fasting and if you missed that it's online but uh, I heard that there was lots of really great conversations that people had, small groups, people were talking about it and then I got a few people that were like, hey, you, you convinced me. I'm going to try it. I'm going to go for this. 
And so, uh, so that was a really, really fun week. Um, and this week, we're in John 3. And, and many churches, historically and all over the world right now, are, are reading the same passage of Scripture and talking about some similar things. Um, so it's a, it's a good passage for us. And really, here's the thing is, this week and next week go together. Okay, they're kind of like a package deal. Because um, next week, we're going to read the very next chapter of John. It's John chapter 4. And this is famously known as the story of, of the woman at the well. So you have Nicodemus in John 3, and then you have the woman at the well in John 4. And, and normally these passages of Scripture are, are preached on separately. But I, I hope, as you'll see, if you're here this week and next week, these really do, they're supposed to fit together. There's a reason why they're right next to each other. There's a reason why John, in, in recounting the, the story of Jesus, just put these right together. Because what we see is we see Jesus Having a conversation, Jesus having an interaction with two very different people. Very different people. Nicodemus, so different than the woman at the well. And yet, they're also similar in, in so many different ways. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see Jesus be so tender. We're going to see Jesus be so, um, you know, caring of where they're at in their journey, what step they're on. And we're going to see Jesus approach them and ask different questions just based on what they need. Jesus is going to love them enough to give them exactly what they need. So that's next week. I wish I could do the woman at the well this morning too, but they don't, it'd be, it'd be too long of a sermon, okay? So uh, we need to move that to next week. So we're going to look at Nicodemus. And this story reminds me of an experience I had when I was in college. When I was in college, um, I was going to the U of O and we went on this missions trip down to Los Angeles to this, this cool ministry down there called the Dream Center. There's a couple of Dream Centers around the country and LA has a nice big one and it does a lot of cool ministry all over the place um, in the city. And so we went down and we, uh, we were there to just help out and just kind of do whatever they needed. And one of the things they had us do was they, they, they were going to drop us off like on Hollywood Boulevard like at 11 o'clock at night. And we were supposed to just walk up and down Hollywood Boulevard and just like talk to people about Jesus. And like, in full disclosure, I didn't do that. I, I was too nervous. Uh, they dropped me off and I was like, I don't know what to say. So I just like prayed, you know, for people and things. And I was just like, I don't know what to say. Um, and, uh, but I had this profound moment that night that honestly really ch like changed me forever. I know that sounds like an overstatement, but um, it really did. It had a significant impact on just how I view ministry. And, and uh, it, was, it was just one of these times where I just felt like God's presence was right there. And he just taught me something that I didn't know before. And I was walking on Hollywood Boulevard. And I was walking down the street. And in the same moment, I passed in between two different people. On one moment, right on my left here, there was a gentleman sitting on the curb. He was obviously homeless. He was, he was uh, begging for, for money. He, you know, he was... Uh, he needed help. You know, here's this man. He was, just, he was kind of dirty and he was, you know, he just looked like he'd been on the street for a long time. And right at the same moment, there was a gentleman walking this way. And I passed in between him in the same moment. And this gentleman had a suit on. He had a nice watch. He was talking on a cell phone. He was obviously very important. Um, he was obviously headed to someplace very important, talking to an important person. And I, 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 Something happened. Something in that, in that moment, I, I was in between them and I, I just had an epiphany. And I just realized that, that God loves both of these guys. And that both of these guys, guys needs Jesus just as much as the other one. That they both need him desperately. I realized in that moment that both of these gentlemen represent mission fields. And that both mission fields are important. That they're, they're important mission fields. 
But I realized that, you know, this guy down here, the thing is, is he, at least he knows he needs help. Like, he's asking for help. He knows that he needs something. And I, I, I kind of know how I could help this guy. Like, I could get him a sandwich. I could get him some socks. I can get him a jacket. Like, I know there's some things I know how to help this guy initially. But how do I help this guy? Like, how do I reach this guy? And I realized that in that moment that, that both mission fields have their deep, deep challenges and both of them are important. But in one sense, I, I realized that, and in some ways, this is a harder mission field because this guy, doesn't, this guy probably doesn't think he needs anything. He's probably got everything. And so I've got to like start with, with him to convince him that he, that he needs something when really he might be just as impoverished as this guy, but just in a different way. And that was just a huge moment for me because I realized that we need missionaries to go to the ghetto and to Google. That both are important, important, important mission fields. But how do I help this guy? I mean, what do I do with this guy? This guy, he probably thinks he doesn't need anything. How am I going to get underneath that? That's exactly what this story about Nicodemus is all about. Because what we have with Nicodemus is a guy who seemingly, he's, he's doing well. He's a good guy. Well, I mean, let's, let's, just, let's just go to the text. What do we know about Nicodemus? Well, it says that he's a Pharisee. He's a, he's a part of the, these, uh, re, the religious rulers, part of the Sanhedrin. Um, he, would have been, he would have been very smart. He would have been very wise. He probably was quite old because you don't get onto that team unless, unless you're, you're, you're well on in age. Um, he's probably very wealthy. He's probably um, esteemed in his, in his community. I mean, this guy is... I mean, he's at, the, he's at the top of kind of like the social order there. Um, this guy is, um, a, a, you know, he's a teacher. He's put together. He's connected. This guy is a U of O law professor. Um, he's a Eugene City councilman. He's an elder at his church. He's got a house in the South Hills. His kids probably go to South Eugene High School or to Marist probably. probably go, his kids probably go to Marist. Um, he, uh, he vacations in Sun River. He, his, his lawn is groomed meticulously well. He's got a great looking lawn. He pays his taxes. Um, he helps coach his kid's basketball team. Um, this is a guy that you want to be neighbors with. This is a guy that you want your kids to be friends with his kids. I mean, this is, I mean, this guy is, he's put together. He's good. What else do we know about him? We know that he's coming, to, he's coming to Jesus at night. Why? He's probably, you know, he's kind of doing it in secret. This is, you know, Nick at night right here. Um, and, yeah, Bible humor. Thanks for laughing, Joel. I appreciate it. Um, there's, uh, you know, what, what is he doing there at night? Yeah, well, he's... Um, Probably doesn't want some people to know. He realized from his voice, you can see in his voice what he says. He says that we have some, you know, we recognize that you're like this. So he's obviously representing another group of people. He's obviously sort of doing some backdoor politicking with Jesus. He's, you know, he's like he's coming. He's just saying, hey, Jesus, I know you're not super popular with the religious establishment. But I've got a group here and we, 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 we can, we want to play ball with you. Like, we, we could probably bring something to the table. We could, you, we'll help you, you help us. You know, there's kind of like a little mafia sort of like thing going on, perhaps. Like, hey, well, we can help each other here, you know, sort of thing that's going on. Um, what does he think Jesus is or who does he think Jesus is? Well, he, Nicodemus thinks that Jesus is a teacher. He says, Rabbi, teacher. Nicodemus thinks that Jesus is, is a good man, that his, his miracles are legitimate, that he's got something to teach us. 
Um, this is similar to what most people believe Jesus to be, even in our culture today. You ask anybody, most people on the street, even if they're agnostic or, or atheist or, or indifferent, you know, to the whole thing, they would say, I, organized religion? Uh, I don't like that. But Jesus, man, Jesus, Jesus had some really good things to say. He was, he was a good teacher. He was probably a good man. And so Nicodemus has this view of Jesus. Nicodemus, at this point, doesn't think Jesus is the savior. He thinks Jesus is the teacher. He's a good teacher. And what's happening here? Well, Jesus knows why Nicodemus is here. Nicodemus isn't here to get like new information from Jesus. Nicodemus isn't here to sort of, isn't here to sort of, uh, you know, like, like kind of get, um, you know, to, to take what have, all of his assumptions and have them sort of be undermined. No, Nicodemus is here. Um, to, he's got all of his assumptions about how life works and about how somebody gets into God's good graces and who gets into heaven and who doesn't and all that. He has all these assumptions. And he's expecting that Jesus is going to give him a little bit of information about how his assumptions work. He's assuming Jesus is going to give him a little bit more. He's assuming that Jesus is going to give him the 11th commandment or the, you know, or the, you know, like a little extra. It's like a, like a, like an orchestra. Like if I'm conducting an orchestra, I'd be like, hey, it all sounds nice, but I need a little bit more violin. I need a little bit more cello. I need a little bit more cowbell. You know, I need a little bit more of all these different things. And, uh, and then, and then we'll be good. And it's like Nicodemus is like, hey, my life, things are good. I've got a good system here. But Jesus, you can add a little bit to my symphony. So, you know, just add a little bit here. You know, give me a little bit more information. And this is not going to fly with Jesus. Because Jesus isn't going to give Nicodemus what, what he wants. Because Jesus is not here to tell Nicodemus about how his assumptions work better. Jesus is about to tell him something that is going to flip his assumptions upside down. That's going to deeply disturb Jesus. And I'm sorry, Nicodemus. And what Jesus tells Nicodemus should be kind of disturbing to us in a bit, in a good way. In a good way. What does Jesus, what does Jesus tell him? Jesus says, listen, Nicodemus, I, I got I, I to tell you, I'm not here to give you more. I'm not, I'm not here to be a nice addition I'm here to give you a whole new foundation. He says this, Nicodemus, you need to be born again, he says. Nicodemus, here's what, here's what you need to do. Very truly, I, say, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Nicodemus, you think that you're pr pretty high up there because you have all these good stuff going for you. But listen, Nicodemus, I got to tell you, you're, you're going to have to start over. That you are not making it into the kingdom any, any before the pimp and the prostitute. He's like, Jesus, and he's levering, leveling the playing field here. He says, Nicodemus, listen, everything that you thought was getting you there, everything that you thought was going to do it, listen, I got it. we're going to start from ground zero. You need to start over. You need to start again. You need to be born again, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is confused at this point. He's like, he's, he's probably thinking, Jesus, you, you can't be saying what I think you're saying. You must be talking, you must be talking literally. Like you have to, you, you can't be saying that I, Nicodemus, have to be born again. I mean, no, no, no. That's for like the, the weak people, the hurting people. You know, they need fresh starts. No, no, no. I don't need a fresh start. And so he assumes that maybe Jesus is talking literally. So if you notice in the text, it's so funny. He's like, he says, how can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asks. Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born, Jesus. I mean, 
I mean, you're not saying that I mean, people are going to get back into the womb, right? Like, right, Jesus? You're not saying that. You can't be saying that. See, this offended Nicodemus. This offended Nicodemus for him to be told that he's got to be born again. First of all, Nicodemus is a Jew. And Jewish people in that time, I mean, if you, if they, if you were related to Abraham, you are in. You are in. You are part of the, raw, the right family. And if you're a Gentile, you're in the wrong family. If you're related to Abraham, if you're Jewish, you're in. So for a Jewish person to hear that, no, you need to be reborn, born again, that would have been offensive. But also it's offensive because here's Nicodemus and he's... he's He's done all these good things. And he's thinking, man, the people who need to start over the, are the ones that are like got all this sin in their life. And they've, you know, they've got all this, these problems. And you know, that's for them. I, I don't need to be born again. I'm, I'm good, aren't I, Jesus? And Jesus says, I love you enough to tell you, Nicodemus, that the system that you've been working on, the system, the system that you thought that if you just sort of do all these good things, that then that's going to be the thing that earns your salvation. He says, that's not the system. That's not the thing that I came to do. That's not the kind of Lord that I'm over. I'm not over that sort of system at all. Jesus looks at Nicodemus and he looks at us and he says, look, I got to tell you, if you want to enter the kingdom, then you got to be, you got to be born again. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean for Nicodemus? What, what, Nicodemus? what is Jesus trying to tell Nicodemus? Why does Nicodemus need to be born again? All sorts of reasons, just two this morning. Jesus is redefining performance and he's redefining sin. He's, re, he's radically redefining two things that we think we know stuff about and that Nicodemus thinks he knows stuff about. He's redefining performance and he's redefining sin. So the first one is he's redefined, Jesus is redefining performance right here. Nicodemus has a performance-based system that he's running off of. A performance-based um, system. Nicodemus thinks, if I do these good things and if I follow the, the Torah, if I follow these good rules, then I've, I'm in. I've, I've made it. But, you know, even if you're not a Christian or not religious, everybody sort of walks around with religious, or sorry, with, uh, with, with performance-based systems. We don't call them that, but if we look around and we say, you know, people all over are thinking, man, if I can just get my body to look a certain way, then I'll be somebody. If I can just get that paycheck to a certain amount, then I'll be somebody. If I can just get that boyfriend or the girlfriend, then I'll be somebody. If I can just, if I can just sort of perform, 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 just fill in the blank. If I can just sort of just perform, then I'll be lovable. Then I'll have hope. Then my life will have meaning. But our world is just filled with performance-based systems. And even every, all the other world religions are performance-based systems. If you, bow, if, you do, if you bow down this times a day, if you do the four noble truths, if you follow the eightfold path, if you, you, know, if you live a good life, you'll, you'll reincarnate in the next life and you'll be better. And if you just keep that up, it's, they're all performance-based systems. And every once in a while, somebody just shows up onto the scene, some guru of some kind, and says, oh, they're all wrong on their performance-based systems. I've got the right performance-based system. And if you just follow my prescribed performance, you know, eight, eight steps to freedom, then you, you'll be fine, then you'll be good. And people flock to those kind of messages because we love, we want to know the answers. We want to get the stuff. It's like how there's always a new diet deal every, all the time, right? Somebody shows up and is like, no, it's not that, it's this. And I've got the answers and I did the studies. And so this is how you get healthy and fit. And so we just flock and we flock. All performance-based systems. And this is exactly what Jesus is coming to confront. Because performance-based systems, they don't help us. 
they kill us. Performance-based systems kill us. You know why? Because performance-based systems, you know this. I'm just, I'm just telling you something you already know. Performance-based systems, they create two kinds of people, only two kinds of people. Performance-based systems either create really insecure people because who knows if I'm performing? How do you know if you're performing well? Who gets to draw those lines and compared to who? Nobody knows where those lines are. And so people who are in a performance-based system, you're either in, you're either, um, you, you know, you're, you know, you're not sure if like you're performing well, you know, you're, 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 you're not sure about it. You're either, you're either that or you're prideful. Because if I'm a good rule follower, if I'm good at performing, then I so easily begin to look down my noses at everybody else who's not performing like me or my particular group of people. Performance-based systems just create two different kinds of people. In you know, people who are people who either are prideful or people who are not sure that they're measuring up. And those are horrible places to be. Those are exhausting places to be. And those create lots of issues, lots of issues in our world. You know this, but if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Is that this? Is there's no assurance when your salvation or your hope or your meaning is based on your performance. There's no assurance there. You're just going to live with this question mark all the time. Have I done enough to be loved? Have I, have I followed enough rules? You just won't know. There's no assurance there. The other thing that Jesus is doing is he's redefining sin. And this is, this is huge. I hope I can explain this well. But um, there's all sorts of ways to define sin. Usually we think of sin as like things that you commit, like acts that you commit. That's, 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 a, that's a tiny slice of, of, of what sin is. There's another way to think of it is there's all this also sin that there's sins of commission, meaning sins you commit, and there's sins of omission, like things that you should have done but you didn't do. We normally don't think of that as sin, but that's wrapped up in there too. But then it even goes deeper than that, that if we were going to let G- Genesis 3 define sin for us, let's let Genesis 3 define sin for us for a second. Genesis 3 tells us that, our, that, that you know, the, the prototype of humanity, like who we were, we're connected to Adam and Eve, and what Adam and Eve did is they're in this garden, everything's good, and God says, trust me, trust me, you can trust me to be God. But they believe the lie that they don't need to trust God we don't need to trust you we can trust ourselves we don't need to trust you to find good and good and evil for us we can do that on our own and so Genesis 3 says the root of sin isn't just acts of sin that you there's 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 sin under the sin and the sin under the sin is human beings trying to be in control of our lives so that we can just trust ourselves and we don't have to trust God I'm just going to trust myself. I'm going to trust in, I'm going to trust in me instead of God. That that's the root of sin. And you know that you can do that in so many different ways. You can trust in yourself in a secular sort of way, meaning we don't need God and we're just going to create meaning like intellectually on our own. You can do it in a rebellious way. You can say, who needs rules? I'm just going to break all the rules and just, I'm just going to be me and I'm just going to be free. You can, you, can, you can be your own Lord and Savior in a secular way. You can be your own Lord and Savior in a, in a rebellious way. And did you know that you can be your own Lord and Savior in a religious way? That people use religion like this all the time. And that it's, even, it's in our hearts that we tend to do this too. That people can use good works as a way to be their own Lord and Savior. Do you know how it works? It's like this. It's like, God, um, I'm going to do these good works and you better bless me. I'm going to do these good things, and so you better show up. 
And so as long as I do these things, this is the deal, is, is you're going to like me, everybody else is going to like me, and so my life will go well. And we can still use religion as a way to just work out our idolatry and our sin by just saying, you know, God, these are the good works. I'm trusting in my good works for my salvation. I, it's too hard to, to trust in your good work. I'm going to trust in my good works. And Jesus, for Nicodemus right now, when he says, you need to be born again, he is getting to the heart of this. Because Nick, here's Nicodemus. And now the story's different next week with the woman at the well. She's got a different set of things that she's wrestling with. But with Nicodemus, here he is. He's the guy in the business suit walking this way. Jesus is like, Nicodemus, you think that you're good. But listen, you're looking to the wrong thing. You're looking at your performance and you're looking at your pedigree for your salvation, and that's going to leave you dry. It's going to leave you tired. It's going to leave you empty. It's going to turn you into, a, into a, a prideful jerk. Or you're going to feel like you're never measuring up, and you're going to always wonder if you're loved. Says Nicodemus, that is not the system. I'm going to redefine the whole thing. You need to be born again. Um, my favorite story from the Old Testament is just like this story. I was reading Nicodemus, and it made me think of my favorite story from the Old Testament, this, this guy named Naaman. And Naaman is very similar to Nicodemus. Naaman is, is, he's a general. He is rich. He is connected. He is at the top of the food chain. But there's one problem with Naaman. Naaman has leprosy. And he, it, and he doesn't know how it can be cured. But he's heard about this prophet in Israel named Elisha. And he thinks, if I go to see Elisha. Elisha can heal me. And so Naaman loads up his whole entourage, literally loads up buckets of gold and silver and just and all these treasures, and he brings them over, and he shows up on Elisha's door. Elisha, Naaman is here. I am here to buy my healing. He's going to pay Elisha to heal him. And this is such a funny story because Elisha doesn't even come to the door. Elisha sends a servant to the door, which is such a slap in the face to, to Naaman. Elisha doesn't even come. Elisha sends a servant and the servant says, oh, hey, Naaman, we knew you were going to be coming here. If you want your healing, that's great. We want you to go down to the river and we want you to wash in this river. It's a little travel, little, little travel to the river. Go wash in this river and you'll get your healing. And do you know what Naaman does? Naaman leaves furious, angry. Why is Naaman angry? I mean, he can go get his healing. You know why he's angry? It's because he's, just, he's angry that he has to go get his healing in a way that anybody else could get their healing. He's, he's coming like, no, I'm Naaman. No, 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 no. No, I don't get my healing like this. I brought gold. See, I earned my healing. You know, like if Elisha's servant had come to the door and said, hey, Naaman, if you want to get your healing, here's what you got to do. I want you to find the six infinity stones and I want you to put them on a gauntlet and I want you to bring them to me. Here's what I want you to do, Naaman. I want you to go get the broom of the wicked witch of the West. I want you to bring it to me. Here's what I want you to do, Naaman. I want you to go to Hyrule Castle. I want you to defeat evil Ganon. I want you to rescue Princess Zelda, bring her back to me, and then you will get your healing, right? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to 1985 and get the sports almanac. And if you can bring that back to the future, then you will get your healing. If you just take this ring of power and throw it back into the, the, the fires of Mount Doom 
from whence it came, then you will get your healing, Naaman. And if Naaman had heard any of those things, you know what he would have done? He would have said, yeah, that's, see, that's a God, that's a God with standards. That's a God, that's a God who just knows that like, you don't just give away healings. No, 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 I'm going to earn it. I'm going to be a hero. And he's just told to go wash in the river. And he's so angry because he's thinking any prostitute can wash. Any like poor person can wash. That's not how Naaman gets his healing. And he's confronted with this reality that everybody gets their healing the same way. Doesn't matter who he is, no matter what, what his pedigree was, that he's got a God that says, I'm going to give it to you, not because you've earned it, Naaman, but because of my grace. See, the hardest lesson that Naaman had to learn was that there wasn't a great deed that needed to be done. In fact, there is a great deed that needed to be done. And the great deed that needed to be done is just to, just to receive it for free. Just to be grateful for it and to receive it. See, that's grace, everybody. And that is so hard for us. See, grace isn't too easy for many of us. It's too hard. It's too hard. We so just want to earn it. We so want to, want to just take control. We want to be like Adam and Eve. We want to, want to take the fruit and say, no, no, no I'm going to be in control. I don't, I don't want to give control to you, God. It's, it's too hard. So I'm going to trust in my ability to perform. That's what's going to make me good. That's what's going to make, give me salvation. And Jesus is just working with Naaman, er, sorry, with Nicodemus. And do you know what Nic how Nicodemus responds to this whole you need to be born again thing? You know what he says? I love his response. I hope it's the response that, that we all have when we come up against things that just like kind of turn our brain under, uh, you know, upside down. He says this in verse 9, Nicodemus, it's like he pauses and he's like, how can this be? How can this possibly be? that I just have to be born again. What's the cure? How does, how does Naaman get born again? How does it work? Well, Jesus says it in the text. He gives Nicodemus a clue. It's kind of like a really strange part of the text that Bethany read because what Jesus does is he says, hey, Nicodemus, remember that story from the Old Testament when Moses lifted up the snake on the stick? <laughs> and and uh, you know, at this point, probably Naaman is tired of talking about wombs and wind and babies. And you know, he's like, I, I'm not understanding. Which, I've heard that Jesus does this to people. He just like he messes with your head, and he's like, I don't get this stuff. But when Jesus says, Hey, remember the story of Moses and the snake and the stick? He's like, He's like, oh, thank you. Finally, something that that Nicodemus understands. Yes, Jesus, I know all about that story. I taught that story in Sunday school last week at church. I know that story, Jesus. And it's this really wacky story from the Old Testament that I don't have time to get into, but it's this, the Israelites were dying. They were sick. There were these like snakes that were biting them, making them sick. And God's like, or Moses is like, God, what do I do? And Moses says, this is what I want you to do, Moses. I want you to put this like image of a snake and I want you to put it up on a stick and all the Israelites that look at the snake, they'll get healed. And that's what happened. It's a really strange story. But Jesus says, here's, here's, here's how you get born again. Nicodemus, remember how Moses lifted up the snake and the people saw the snake and they, and they got their healing. He says, just when you see the sun lifted up, when you see me lifted up, that's that moment when you're going to get born again. He's saying, Nicodemus, I want you to stop looking at your performance and your pedigree. I want you to look 
at what I freely provide. And that's kind of like the end of the story. The author, John, he stops the story right here and he inserts his own, his own commentary. And, it, and he gives us the most famous Bible verse ever. It's the Bible verse that even if you don't believe in the Bible, you probably have memorized because you've seen it everywhere. John, he pauses the whole deal and he gives us John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever performs really, really well, that whoever, whoever follows all the rules, that whoever, you know, who's, whoever's from the right family, that's not the verse, is it? That whoever believes in me, whoever sees me lifted up and looks at me instead of my performance and my own pedigree for my own salvation, who sees me lifted up and believes in me, they will have a new life. They'll be able to see the kingdom. Now, listen, we don't know if Nicodemus got it in that moment. He might have probably, I suspect, he probably went back to his buddies in the Sanhedrin and he, he was like, guys, I just had the weirdest talk with Jesus. <laughs> I don't know what he was talking. He was talking about wombs at one point and then there was like, a, 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 like I'm confused. We don't know if Nicodemus got it. But we know eventually he did because do you know what? The next time that Nicodemus shows up in this story, do you know where he is? He's at Golgotha, the place where Jesus is crucified. And I think when he sees Jesus lifted up on the cross, he got it. He got it. Oh, Jesus lifted up. I don't, I don't trust in me. I, I trust in him. They bring Jesus' body down. And there's two men that take Jesus' body and prepare it and take it to the burial place. You know who that is? That was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. He got it. Nicodemus finally got to a place where he didn't see Jesus as just a teacher, somebody to add something onto what he already believed. Suddenly he realizes that Jesus came to give a whole new ballgame, that the way we get in is not through trusting in our own righteousness, but it's trusting and looking in him. And when you could do that, that's when the penny drops. That's when born again happens. Hey, Ben, will you come up? Because I'm going to kind of bring it in for a landing here. But as they do, um, here's a little final illustration. Here's what humans did from the very beginning, Genesis 3. Genesis 3, remember Adam and Eve, they sin, and there's this shame that comes on them. And, and this big question that comes into their brains and in their hearts, am I loved? Am I, am I loved? Am I truly loved for who I am? And they don't know how to answer that question, so they cover themselves up. They cover themselves up with fig leaves, and there's this separation that happens. But you and I do the exact same thing in our lives, that we all in our lives have created an imposter. This is my imposter, okay? Um, my imposter, you know, here's me, the real me, and my question is, is God, do you love me? Because I'm not sure. Do people like me? I don't know. I really want them to. God, I really want you to like me. But how do I know that you really love me? It's a question that I so want answered, and it's a question that you want answered too. 
And so what we tend to do when we have this big question is we create an imposter. We create a false me. This imposter is more beautiful than me. He's skinnier than me. He's smarter than me. He's more moral than me. He's a, he's a put together dude. And my hope, my desperate hope is thinking, God, you probably, you probably don't love the real me, but you might love him. You might love this guy. I really hope you'll love this guy, Jesus. I'm working really hard for you, Jesus. Really hard, working hard for your approval. And Jesus comes walking into the garden and he's like, Brooks, where are you? And I'm like, right here, Lord. This is me. Look at me. I'm good. Is he good enough for your love, God? The tragedy is that we, tend, we start to think that this is the real us. We start to think, we, we desperately want all of our friends and people to think that this is the real us. And we tend, we start to think that God thinks that this is the real us. And we think that I'm loved because of my righteousness, because of my goodness. But see, Jesus can't, Jesus can't heal the person you're pretending to be. Jesus can't, can't get down underneath the, the, the person you're pretending to be. What God wants to do is so much more difficult, but so much more beautiful. He wants, he doesn't want your imposter. He wants you. And more than that, listen, God doesn't love your imposter. God knows that that's made out of cardboard. God is not fooled or tricked. He doesn't think this is you. God sees you. And guess what? God loves you. He doesn't love the pretend you. The pretend you doesn't even exist in God's mind. It's not even a thing. He loves you. He sees you. He sees your sinfulness. He sees your brokenness. And he loves you. How incredible is that? And being born again starts with this. This is the first step of being born again. And maybe some of you are here. Maybe some of this is the, this is the step that you've been too afraid to take. But this is the step it's going to require. It's scary. It's hard. It takes humility. But this is the step. The first step to being born again is all of us have to step out from behind our imposter. We just have to step out and say, God, here I am. I need you. I need you. I love you. Here I am. And when you have a God that knows you to the bottom but loves you to the top, that and only that will change your life. That will cause you to want to do good works, but now you have a whole different reason for doing good works. Now you're not doing it to keep control, you're doing it because he's got all of the control and how can we not worship him and praise him and love him and obey him? Once you get that, once you take that step, you will be born again, born again. I hope that you're born again this morning. You're willing to take that courageous step